An introduction is someone brings you, someone brings you into the place of a king. And this was a, a radical, radical thought for people who lived in the first century. This was breaking news in the first century because for centuries, people didn't have any kind of access to God. Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogi. Dr. Brogi is senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We've moved into chapter 5 of our study of the book of Romans, and in the first two verses, the Apostle Paul tells us how to have peace with God. The sad reality, however, is that many people don't realize that apart from true faith, we are really enemies of God. I recently read the testimony of Jacob Koshi, a man born and raised in Singapore, who had one driving ambition in his life, and that was to make money. He wanted things, and he desperately wanted them, and he wanted to be rich, and it led him into the world of gambling and illicit drugs, and as a dealer, and ran a whole smuggling network, and he ended up in a Singapore prison. And when he was locked in that little tiny cell, his whole empire had crumbled. And he said he just felt so destitute and empty inside. And his one enjoyment in life was that he worked a deal with one of the guards where he could get some tobacco smuggled in. And he'd get his tobacco and he took that Gideon's Bible and he tore off the pages and he rolled the cigarettes with the pages of a Gideon Bible. And he fell asleep smoking it and it fell on the floor. And when he woke up, he looked down and that little cigarette had kind of opened up and all he could read was, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And it intrigued him. So he asked for another Bible and he got one and he began to read about Saul of Tarsus, how God could save an enemy and make him a friend. And he thought, if God could save someone like the Apostle Paul, certainly he could save me. And he got on his face and he humbly asked Jesus Christ to be his personal Lord and Savior. It's a marvelous testimony of how God worked in his life. It's a marvelous testimony of how God changed him from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. And now he's a missionary in the Far East. And every once in a while when he shares his testimony, he says, who would have believed that I could have been saved to the truth of God by smoking the pages of Scripture? <laughs> Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's why Jesus said, those who have only had a physical birth, those who are born of the flesh, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Three times over, he said, you must be born again to see, to enter the kingdom of God. Some people think, well, man's getting better and better. He's not getting better, the Bible teaches. And so they think, well, all we need to do is educate him and culturize him and just give him a little boost. He doesn't need a boost. He needs a birth from above, Jesus said. He must be born again. And God views every sin, every evil thought, every perversion as an offensive maneuver against him, like a missile thrust into the face of a holy God. And that's why the Lord said, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe is judged already. See, most people think that the judgment is way out there in the future. 
like my friend Stan, that God in the end will determine based on what he did whether or not he will accept him. And God already said, no, written across a man's forehead is guilty, condemned. By nature, Paul will say we are children of wrath. Jesus didn't say, stay off the broad road. He said, man is already on the broad road that leads to destruction. He's inviting him to come through a different gate. Man is judged already. Again, here in Romans 8, verse 7, the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh who have not had this birth from above cannot, cannot, cannot please God. We were by nature, verse 10 says, enemies. But now we have been declared righteous. And so Paul says, we exult, we rejoice in God Almighty. Why? Because we have peace with God. Verse 1 begins, therefore, having been justified, how? By faith. Now, if you've been here, we've already studied the need for a person to put their faith in the Lord Jesus. In Romans 3, he said, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And then in that same chapter, he said, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Your sin, your deeds have polluted any good thing that you can do. And so your righteous deeds, not your worst deeds, your best deeds, the Bible says to the prophet Isaiah, are like filthy rags. And so in the fourth chapter, he says, to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, that person's faith is reckoned, it's credited to him as righteousness. If you bring human merit and human deeds as a reason for God's acceptance, you're making two major violations according to the Scripture. Number one, you are denying the sufficiency of Jesus' blood to save you. You think you need to add something to it. You're denying His sufficiency, and in the process, you're denying your depravity. When my friend Sam said, well, you know, God sees my heart, and He knows I'm basically a good person. He's denying His depravity. And that's why Jesus said, it's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. Notice further in verse 1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. I was witnessing to a man this week who came to deliver a piece of equipment at my house. And as he was unloading it off the truck, I was talking to him about the Lord. I said, you go to church anywhere? And he said, well, no, not really. And we went on and asked him the diagnostic questions, and he said he was 100% sure he was going to heaven. I said, well, why, were you sh why are you sure? He said, well, you know, uh, when I lived in uh, Greenville, South Carolina, I lost my job and I needed a job, so I thought I would come to Beaufort. always wanted to come to Beaufort, came to Beaufort. He said, within a week, I found two jobs. You see, God is working in my life. I have faith. Now, that's not the kind of faith that will save you, believing God for a job. Now, that's an expression of God's common grace. He causes the rain and the sun to shine on the good and the evil. And very often, God uses his blessings, as we studied in Romans 2, to bring about repentance. We think, well, a man has to fall to the bottom before he can look up. Not always. God sometimes showers a man with blessings, and God uses the blessings of God to bring about repentance. But his faith was not in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not faith in faith that will save you. It's not faith in 
trusting God to provide daily needs or healing or anything else you can think of. It's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord Nelson, the great British admiral in the 19th century, was once victorious over a French admiral. And when the French admiral, upon his defeat, came swaggering up to Lord Nelson, he extended his hand. And he stepped back, the British admiral. He said, sir, your sword, please. I want your sword before I want your handshake. He wanted him to acknowledge that he had been conquered. So don't try to shake hands with me until you admit your defeat. People have this view of God. We're just buddy-buddy. I'm just going to come into the throne room and shake God's hand. And they are not willing to acknowledge his lordship. There's a war going on. And God views a lost man as his enemy. He loves his enemy as he commanded us to love our enemies. But he is nonetheless an enemy of God. And that's why the apostle said, God is now declaring to all men everywhere that they should repent because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world through Jesus Christ, one whom he raised from the dead. And so when you preach Jesus is Lord, you begin to see man's rebellious nature and his resistance towards God. Listen, Joel Osteen, and I don't stammer and stutter for one second, is preaching another Jesus. He is not preaching the Jesus Christ of the Bible. He is preaching another Christ. And thousands are being sucked into it. When you preach Jesus as Lord, that you must come to Him and willing for Him to forgive your sin, implicit in forgiving your sin as you're calling your sin wrong and evil, and that it needs to be forgiven and changed, then it's a whole nother ball of wax. Jesus is Lord, and you come to Him through the Lord Jesus Christ. You submit to his lordship. You cannot have what he gives until you submit to who he is. As I said last time, a child can understand it. A child can know that his sin is offensive to God. And he wants God to forgive that sin and to cleanse that sin and to change him. Notice further, he says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't say we'll eventually get it. He didn't say we're working towards it. He says we have it. You don't grow into peace with God. You don't work your way into peace with God. It's not a continual process. We have peace with God. When you come and say, God, I am an unrighteous sinner, unable to save myself, and I cast myself on the merits of the Lord Jesus in his cross, then God does a transfer from one kingdom into another. And you shouldn't delay that kind of decision. Because none of us have the promise of tomorrow. And so, by the way, while we're on this subject, again, it's not until you have peace with God that you can know the peace of God. Some of the most frustrated, high-strung, tense people I've met are believers. Some of the most frustrated people, they remind me of the guy who's under the water diving and he gets a message in his headset that says, come up quickly, the ship's sinking. <laughs> Listen. Because you've been born again, now you have a new nature. 
Your old nature is not eradicated. And Paul, by the way, is transitioning for us in the fifth chapter. We've looked at the doctrine of condemnation, the doctrine of justification. In the fifth chapter, he's beginning to turn a corner because in 6, 7, and 8, he's going to describe the doctrine of sanctification here in the doctrinal section of Romans. And so many a Christian, because they have this new nature, the spirit is opposed to the flesh, the flesh is against the spirit, that you may not do the things that you please. And while you are not at war with God, there's a war within. And so Paul will speak of the peace of God when he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you've been called. The word rule is a Greek word that eventually comes into English as the word umpire. Let the peace of Christ be an umpire. Let it be the referee in your heart this morning. And when an umpire blows the whistle because you've crossed over a line, God the Holy Spirit blows the whistle when you've crossed over a line into sin. He says you're out of bounds and you still have peace with God because that's an eternal relationship with Him. But the peace of God is gone at that moment. And the only thing that can bring the peace of God back is for you to deal with your sin. Your sin. Don't, don't blame the lack of peace in your heart on your boss or your spouse or your brother or your sister or your coworker. It's your problem. It's my problem. We have to deal with our sin. In Ephesians 2, Paul told the Ephesians, he is our peace. Again, he's speaking there of peace with God. Continuing on the thought, he said, he came and preached peace to you that were far away and peace to those who were near. He describes in that great chapter how God has brought all the nations of the world into one single body, Jew or Gentile alike, because of this new offer of peace. Isaiah the prophet, seven centuries before Christ, spoke of this peace with God. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the chastisement fell that brought us peace. God today wants you to have peace with God. Here's the point. Before you are saved, there's a war, there's enmity. You may not perceive it, but God does. And I want to tell you, the lost world will perceive it when they meet God. We studied it in Romans 3, the final judgment. Every mouth will be shut. No one will be making any excuses. When they see God in all of His holiness, they will know His judgment is just. So we can rejoice, number one, because we have acceptance. Number two, we can rejoice because we have access. We have access. Look now uh, in verse two. And let me just say here parenthetically, I want everyone here this morning, before you leave, to know God's peace. And if you don't, you need to. God wants you to know his peace this morning. And you can have it before you leave this building. If you will yield to Jesus Christ, you say, today I could be saved today. Today is the day of salvation. And so again, very specifically, very pointedly, we have peace with God. Listen, that's a magnificent truth. Let that hammer into your soul. Let it rebound in your heart today. Now, when you read this, that we have an introduction, that we have access in which we stand, that's very, very important. And you don't want to miss the importance of this new introduction, or as the old King James and the ESV translates, access. I like introduction just a little bit better than access, 
because while both are true and it's hard to use a single English word to give the full nuance of the original, while both are true, excess may imply in some people's mind in today's English that it's something that we determine. An introduction is someone brings you Someone brings you into the place of a king. And this was a a radical, radical thought for people who lived in the first century. This was breaking news in the first century because for centuries, people didn't have any kind of access to God. As you read the scripture, it seems like they're always excluded. They're always kept away from God. Let me read to you a few verses from the Exodus. Exodus, so the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and tell them they have two days to get ready. They must set themselves apart as holy, have them wash their clothes and be ready by the day after tomorrow. On that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai as all the people watch. Then he said, listen, mark off a boundary around the mountain for the people and tell them not to go to the mountain or even touch it. Those who touch the mountain must be put to death. Now, nobody could just say, well, I'm just going to go up and see God. No, God underscored over and over and over again, all the way through the scriptures, that he is holy. But Paul says here in Romans 5, we have obtained our introduction, and by this grace we stand. Now, as the centuries went on and the worship of God got more and more formalized, all you could see was barriers. Here's a picture of the temple This gentleman took 30 years in building this model of the temple. He says he's still not finished. He's 78 years old. Says he has 33,000 hours into it. He's logged his time. It's a perfect two-scale representation of the original Herodian temple that would have been uh, around in Christ's day. Remember, there are different temples in different periods. The Solomonic temple, the original one, was utterly destroyed and taken apart by Nebuchadnezzar. It was eventually rebuilt and refurbished. Some would call this the second temple. Some would call it the third because Herodias did a total facelift on it. Uh, But in one sense, since it never closed after they rebuilt the Solomonic temple, some in most just call it the second temple. So just keep that in mind as you read about the temples in the scripture. There's going to be another temple called the Tribulation Temple. That's going to be built. I take it it probably won't even start until after the church is raptured, but it will be built and finished by the midpoint of the great tribulation period. But when you look at a temple like this, all you see is division. There was the outer courtyard, the very father's courtyard. That's called the court of the Gentiles. And Gentiles were not allowed to go anywhere beyond that. They, as uh, God-fearers, could approach God, but that's as far as they could get because, again, God was distinguishing Israel out of all the nations of the world because it's through the Jew, Jesus said, that we have salvation. In fact, they have dug up some signs that were on that outer wall, two to be specific. Let me read it to you. They're in the British Museum. They're in Greek because that's the language of the Gentile, not Hebrew. And this is what it said. No foreigner is to go beyond this point, anyone who does has himself to blame for his death, which follows. Only Jewish people could pass beyond that outer wall. Now go back to the next picture of the temple. You see that there's another wall, and that's the court of the women and the courtyard of the men. And again, uh, you had to be a Jewish woman 
or a Jewish man to enter in that, but that's as far as you could go. And then there's another wall, and that's where the Jewish priests went. And then there was still another wall through which they went through golden doors, and you had to be of the tribe of Levi to go through that. And then there was another door, another place that led you into the holy place, and then a curtain behind that that led you into the holy of holies. And there only one man could go once a year for a very brief period of time. Now let Scripture illuminate Scripture. Hold your finger here. Turn to Hebrews 10. I think this will be a blessing to you. Hebrews 10. If you were here 12 years ago, I preached through the book of Hebrews. It's one of the more challenging books in all of the New Testament. But it's a rich book. It's very meaty, very challenging, but very enriching for those who will pursue its truth. Hebrews 10, and look, if you will, at verse 19. He says, since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place, how? By the blood of Jesus. He's saying, if Christ is your Savior, a term that he has used here to define brethren, God gives you confidence to enter into his presence. Not because you've justified yourself by what you have done, but because of the mercy of God. Look at verse 20. Again, he's underscored it's through the blood of Jesus. And in verse 20, he adds, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us, how? Through the veil that is his flesh. Now, have you ever pondered why the veil in the temple, that great curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, and the original tabernacle, it was 10 by 10 by 10, that structure in the Solomonic temple, and later on in the Herodian temple, it was 20 by 20 by 20. There was this curtain where behind the curtain, God came, and you couldn't enter. But why does God make a comparison between that veil, that curtain, and the flesh of the Lord Jesus? Now understand, on the other side of the curtain was the most sacred spot on planet Earth. Because it was in that place where God Almighty, His Shekinah glory would come and His presence would fill the place. And it was in that place there was an ark. Uh, you can see it was a box-like structure, three objects in it. The second set of Ten Commandments, because the first were destroyed because of the rebellious people. They rejected God's standard. There's the jar of manna, which was a rejection of God's provision. They said, we hate this stuff. There was a supernatural stick that budded and had flowers and almonds on it that was the rod of Aaron when they rejected God's leadership. And all three symbols were put in the ark and on the top was the mercy or the propitiatory seat. We've talked about the doctrine of propitiation, remember? And once a year the high priest would go and he would take the blood and he would put it on the top. That's an actual visual, what it would look like, pretty much to scale, what it would be. At least the box is, and there was cherubim over the box. And cherubim in the Bible are different from seraphim. They guard the holiness of God, but when the blood was put on the mercy seat and God looked down, he didn't see his holy standards that had been violated. All he saw was the blood that covered over the sin of the people. Now, the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. It was just symbolic of what God ultimately was going to do. It says, and the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When did that happen? You remember when Jesus was on the cross. He said, to telestai, it's finished, it's done. The payment has been made. 
And then from top to bottom, it was a very thick curtain. Josephus says there was so much material, it was two feet thick. And again, there was no door. You had to kind of go up underneath it, the high priest. But God tore it, not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom, God from heaven rent the curtain. And God was sending a signal that man was now welcomed into his presence. It was a marvelous, marvelous truth. And so there's a new, a living way through his flesh. And so the flesh of the Lord Jesus was like a veil. Had the veil in the temple not been torn, God would have been still saying, keep out, you're not welcomed. But the fact that God tore it because he lacerated the flesh of the Lord Jesus. God is saying, welcome. Listen, one of the greatest tragedies would have been for the Lord Jesus to come and model a sinless life and to have gone to heaven without having died. Unless his flesh had been lacerated because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. We would have no access to God because God's justice would not have been satisfied. And so we have confidence to enter the holy place. How? By the blood of Jesus. Now let me show you a tabernacle. This is an actual two-scale tabernacle. When we were in Israel, we visited this very spot. It had been up about six months, and we didn't even know it was on our tour, and we were blessed to see it. There it is there. That's the picture of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Unlike the temple, which was a permanent structure, this was a very portable structure. And they carted it with them for 40 years in the wilderness. And this is one of the places where they actually made camp. The Bible teaches here next to the Solomonic uh, copper mines. But just picture for yourself some man who comes up and he sees the Jewish people there in the wilderness. And he says, hey, I'd like to go in there. He says, well, you can only go in there if you're Jewish. Are you a Jew? No, I'm a Moabite. Then you can't go in. Well, what would be necessary for me to be able to go in there? Well, the only way you could go in there is if somehow you could be born again all over again and be born not as a Moabite, but born as a Jew. Then you might get in. He said, well, I'll tell you one thing. If I could get in there, I would go to that different kind of place that all those people are looking at. I'd like to be able to go into that place. I'd like to be able to go behind that curtain well, right behind that curtain is the holy place. And not any Jew can go in there. Just someone from the tribe of Levi can go in there. You would have to be not only a Jew, you would have to be a Levite. Well, I'll tell you what, if I were a Levite, I'd go to that room and I understand there's another curtain behind that curtain. See that curtain there? There's another curtain. And on the other side of that curtain, is the Holy of Holies. Oh, if I heard Levi, I'd go behind that curtain. Oh, you wouldn't be able to go behind that curtain if you were a Levi. You had to be a certain kind of Levi. You had to be the high priest of Israel, and there's only one high priest. Well, I'll tell you what, if I were the high priest of Israel, I'd go behind that curtain. I'd spend a lot of time there. Oh, no, 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 no. The high priest can only go in there one day out of the whole year. And then only for a few moments, for a few minutes. But listen to what the writer of the Hebrews is saying. 
He's saying we have confidence to enter the holy place. How? By the blood of Jesus. Because Jesus Christ was the last lamb, the final lamb, the one pictured in the Old Testament. We have confidence to come. How amazing is the grace of God that we who were formerly separated from Him can now enjoy a personal relationship with Him. That we have immediate and unending access to the throne. That truly is something in which to rejoice. For a copy of today's study from Romans chapter 5, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program ROM21, entitled Rejoicing in God. Tomorrow we conclude our look at Rejoicing in God. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.